Be seated. We will hear argument this morning in case 21-1484, Arizona versus the Navajo Nation and the consolidated case. Mr. Liu. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When a reservation is established, that reservation isn't just the land. It's also a right to the timber on the land, a right to the minerals below the surface, and under winters, a right to water for the reservation. Each of those rights is a stick in the bundle that makes up the reservation. And when the Navajo reservation was originally established and later expanded, the Navajo Nation got all of those sticks, and it still possesses them today. There's no dispute about that. The dispute here is about something different, whether the United States owes the Navajo Nation a judicially enforceable affirmative duty to assess the tribe's water needs, develop a plan to meet them, and then carry out that plan by building water supply infrastructure on the reservation. The answer to that question is no. Just as the 1868 treaty didn't impose on the United States a duty to build roads or bridges, or to harvest timber, or to mine coal, the 1868 Treaty didn't impose on the United States a duty to construct pipelines, pumps, or wells to deliver water. Those affirmative duties aren't part of the treaty. And because the government has never expressly accepted those duties, the Navajo Nation's breach of trust claim can't proceed. This is not to say that the United States doesn't have a moral and political responsibility to address the Navajo Nation's water needs. As part of the general trust relationship, Congress and the executive have secured for the Navajo Nation hundreds of thousands of acre feet of water and over a billion of billions of dollars for infrastructure uh, on the reservation. And in, in exercising its own sovereignty, the Navajo Nation is free to develop its own infrastructure projects, including by drilling water to access the cheapest source of water on the reservation groundwater. What the Navajo Nation cannot do, however, is to impose on the United States a duty that the government has never expressly accepted. Accordingly, the judgment below should be reversed. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, Mr. Liu, would you uh, just take a step back and address the jurisdictional uh, issue, uh, particularly with respect to redressability uh, and this uh, court's retention of uh, jurisdiction on the Colorado River? Sure. We don't view the issue as going to the district court's subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, we view it as a substantive merits determination about whether the relief that could be granted at the end of this suit would violate the substance of the decree that this court entered in Arizona versus California. Um, so I think you'd have to look at the relief that could be ordered down the road and measure it against the decree. I think everyone at this point agrees that an order by the district court in this case that would order the delivery of water from the lower mainstream of the Colorado River to the Navajo Reservation would violate the decree because the decree, the decree places conditions on when such water can be delivered by the United States. Uh, where else would the water come from? There's plenty of sources um, on the Navajo Reservation. So if we're talking about the particular uh, uh, region of the Navajo Reservation that's at issue in this complaint, 
the most uh, accessible source of water on the reservation is groundwater. There are aquifers that lie beneath the reservation and there's no impediment to the Navajo Nation accessing those water sources today. In fact, they're doing it across other parts of the reservation. Uh, another source of possible water for this region is the upper basin, the, the Colorado River in the upper basin. That that upper basin water is farther away than the lower Colorado mainstream, but it's far more accessible. And the reason why is if you look at the terrain of the lower Colorado mainstream that's adjacent to this part of the, of the reservation, it is a steep canyon. You're, the, the, the reservation is on a plateau, and then it's a 3,000 to 4,000 foot drop down the canyon to the lower Colorado River. You, you said the, uh, that water was farther away. Um, how far away is it? It's, it still borders the reservation, but it's further north. Uh, it's just above Lee Ferry. The, 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 the area we're talking about here is below Lee Ferry, so it's not much farther. Yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, it, how far away from the agricultural areas where water is needed? Well, I think to be clear, the, the water needed here isn't for agricultural needs. If you read the complaint at J101 to 102, the needs there alleged aren't agricultural uh, needs. They are domestic municipal needs. And I think that just highlights the mismatch between the needs here and the agricultural provisions that are relied upon in the 1868 treaty. The 1868 treaty provisions are about farming. They are about providing seeds and agricultural implements to the tribe in the original part of the reservation. The needs alleged in the complaint exist hundreds of miles away, and they're not even about agricultural needs. They're about needs for domestic and municipal consumption. Um, you know, if you look at the text of the, of the treaty, the, and this, this is reproduced at 11A of our, of our statutory appendix, the provisions at issue, this is Article 7 of the provision, they're about particular items, seeds and agricultural implements for a particular area the tracts of land that were selected in the original reservation. They're for a limited period of time, up to three years, and they're for a particular amount. $100 the first year, $25 the second and third. The duty asserted here is about something else. It's about water. It's about water for a different part of the reservation, 100 miles away. It's about water for an ongoing and indefinite basis, not for a limited period of time. And the dollar amount, there, there's no limit. I think part of the problem, the separation of powers concerns that the claim raises is that the, uh, it's really unclear what the scope of the plan that the Navajo Nation envisions the, the United States will design Mr. will look like at the uh, end. Mr. Liu, I think you said that the, the Navajo Nation has, quote, hundreds of thousands of acre feet of water. Is that correct? Correct. Do you have a figure for how much water that is? It is, well, uh, an acre feet is how much water would fill up an acre of land sure. one foot. Right, right. And, you know, we could but do that. But do you that. know how many hundreds of thousands? Do you, um, know, do you know the amount of, can the, has the United States calculated or could you calculate water per capita? Uh, I, don't have, I, don't, I don't have water per capita, but to give you some, some examples, the, the um, San Juan settlement in New Mexico provides uh, 37,000 acre feet annually. Um, you know, this covers 250,000 people over a 40-year time horizon. The appropriations associated with that are $1.9 billion. Um, so that's sort of the magnitude. It's 300 miles of pipeline, uh, 19 pumping plants, two water treatment 
uh, facilities. So uh, these, these are substantial facilities that the government, in furtherance of its general trust relationship, has agreed to provide. Um, and but I understood that that was part of the Navajos um, argument in this case. In other words, you, you say here that you don't have uh, calculations about water per capita, and I understood that their breach of trust claim was about that, was about the fact that the United States, they say, has not done what it needs to do as a trustee to determine what their water needs are. And I would say that there's no uh, duty, no specific duties found in the treaty that requires us to conduct that sort of analysis. Any, Mr. Liu, um, with respect to that, uh, there are provisions in the treaty with respect to agricultural agriculture, a promise that this will be a permanent home and that there will be uh, opportunity for raising animals, right? Correct. Is it possible to have a permanent home, farm, and raise animals without water? No. And could the United States dam the little Colorado right above the, the reservation and prevent water from flowing into the reservation? It could do that as a matter of fact. Well, as a matter of fact. Right. But as Not a matter legally. of law, could it no. do that? No. Because that would breach the treaty obligation, right? If the tribe were making use of the water, then it would breach, uh, it, 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 would, uh, it would interfere with their exercise of their winter's rights. Okay, so clearly there is a duty to provide some water to this tribe under the treaty, right? No. Wait, hold on, what am I missing? We just agreed you can't dam the little Colorado because that would breach the treaty. Right. That's that water, right? Correct. So there's some obligation with respect to water in this treaty. There is an obligation to respect their winter's rights, just as any other landowner would have to do. But the difference here is- And there's an obligation to provide opportunities for a permanent home. Now, let's say as a matter of state contract, I promise you a permanent home, and that you'll be able to raise animals there, and you'll be able to conduct agriculture there. Would it not be a breach of contract to then provide a home where none of those things is possible? Is that a permanent home? Uh, I, 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 think, I think everyone agrees that the permanent homeland comes with the bundle of sticks that I said at the outset. One of those sticks is under- I, I, If you just answer my question, could I bring a good breach of state contract claim for someone who promised me a permanent home, the right to conduct agriculture, and raise yeah. animals, if it turns out it's the Sahara Desert? I don't think you would be able to bring a breach of contract claim. I, really? I, I, I think- You don't I, think that's a breach of good faith and fair dealing? You don't uh, I, think I at don't, least it would state a claim? I don't think so, and, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm happy to apply if ordinary— If we disagree with that, yeah. then what? If, uh, if we found that that might, under ordinary contract principles, state a claim, right. and that in fact many state courts have found such claims— If, if this, to, court, to, if this court thought the Hickoria standard were satisfied, then, then there would be a judicially enforceable duty, and then we'd move on to the second step right. of, of the analysis. And, and, and with respect to that second step, or maybe it's the first, I don't know, the jurisdictional question, um, you agree that uh, the trust claim brought here is not the type of question that must be addressed before addressing whether the Navajo Nation has identified a judicially enforceable duty, right? We don't think the jurisdictional issue needs to be addressed before. We don't think it's a jurisdictional issue, correct. Mr. Liu, I, I guess I'm just not understanding the nature of your argument, so would, would you clarify it for me? 
you, you start by saying that the Indians have rights to water uh, and that they get them by virtue of having rights to land, having a reservation of this kind, and the rights to water just go along with that. Is that a matter of the treaty, or are you saying it's something else, that the rights arise some other way? It, it is a matter of the treaty uh, setting aside the land for the Indians. This is our Okay, so if it's a matter of the treaty, if, if you read the treaty as giving rights to water, right? Because you could read the treaty and say, I don't see anything about water here. Right. There are no rights to water. But you're not reading the treaty that way. You're saying, look, when the treaty gives land, the treaty also says, you know, implicit in that is that you have a right to the water that will enable you to live on that land. So then there seems to me to be a gap, because then you're saying, well, notwithstanding that the treaty gives water, that the treaty promises water, that's what treaties do. It's a contract that promises something. You're saying uh, those rights are unenforceable. And I guess I don't understand if the treaty promises water, where you get the idea that that is unenforceable. No, it, uh, the, the treaty does uh, vest water rights in the tribe, and those rights are enforceable, including by the tribe. But the promise that we have allegedly breached here isn't about violating those rights. It's about violating affirmative duties to supply the water to the tribe. It, it, it's just like my uh, uh, minerals. I guess I'm not getting it. If, 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 um, if there's a contract and the contract gives a right to one party, then just by the nature of how rights work, it gives a duty to the other party. So there's a contract here and it gives a right to the Navajos. You say so yourself. That means it puts a duty on the other party to the contract, which is the, the U.S. government. The, the right that is conferred by the, by the reservation of the land is a right to use the, the water and to exclude others from using it. Just like it's a right to use the minerals or to exclude others from using it. Just like it's a right to use the land or to exclude others from using it. But none of that- So you're saying that we should read this contract as giving the tribes rights, but only as against third parties? Well, it is against the government because we can be liable for taking their land, for taking their timber, and for taking their water. But the rights themselves are property rights. They are, they are uh, sticks in a bundle that the tribe got. What they're asking for now is for us to help them use all of those sticks in the bum bundle, for example, by, by building the plants, the pipelines, the wells, et cetera. And so, so you're saying that um, this, this contract obligation that you read into the treaty is just the U.S. government saying, we won't interfere with your ability to get water. But that the U.S. government did not say, you know, in giving you this land, we are also promising you that we will do what's necessary to make the land livable. That is correct. That is correct. What, we, what the reservation conveys is a set of property interests. And by their nature, those property interests allow the, the tribe to use and exclude, but by their nature, they don't impose on the United States new duties. But how is thank that you, consistent? Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, Mr. Liu, uh, is there a difference in your answer for pre-existing uh, access to water on the, uh, and, uh, on the uh, land as opposed to uh, the need to bring water to that land? 
it, it, it is a difference between the right to use the land, whether it's pre-existing or not. Uh, they, they can be new. I think what I'm trying to get you to, to focus on is, if I hear you, you're saying that the government and third parties cannot interfere with water on the land. Correct. But the, you also said you have no affirmative duty. So my second question is whether or not you, uh, it could be argued that by providing a permanent home, you are required to bring water to land where there is no water. No, we, we do not understand the permanent homeland language to convey that sort of duty. And it, I think it would be surprising to those who entered into the treaty if, if that were such a promise. The whole, the whole point of the treaty was to allow the Navajo Nation to return to their ancestral homeland where they could support themselves. Justice Alito? Well, I wanted to pursue the questions that I asked about some of the real-world impacts of what's at stake here. Uh, so I asked about the total amount of water that has been supplied to the Navajo and whether there's a per capita cap uh, calculation. I gather you don't have that. I don't have a per capita. Can that be supplied to us? Yes, we could supply that. And how would, if that were calculated, how would it compare to water per capita for the residents of, let's say, Arizona? It may, it may well be less. I think no one denies that there are uh, water needs on the reservation. If I had been shown a seat of the pants calculation that per capita water on the Navajo Nation is greatly in excess of per capita water for residents of Arizona, do you think that would be incorrect? Honestly, I, have, I don't have a basis to know whether that's correct or not. Uh, is there anything in the view of the United States that is distinctive about this treaty as opposed to many other treaties entered into between the United States and other uh, Indian tribes with reservations adjacent to bodies of water? No, there's the, the, the provisions in particular that the Navajo Nation has relied upon are not, in our view, distinctive to this uh, treaty. There are many, I mean, most treaties uh, set aside a reservation that is intended to be a permanent homeland, and many uh, pr treaties also have provisions that supply support for agriculture. So if, if this court were to conclude that there were judicially enforceable duties that arose out of provisions like that, I think we would be facing uh, similar suits across reservations in, in the country. And what would be the nationwide impact of such a ruling? Well, there are 500 uh, or so tribal reservations. Um, the government has entered into about 30 or so uh, water agreements um, since the late 1970s. Um, there's ongoing litigation um, in, in courts across the country. I think this would impose on the United States a sort of amorphous duty to take, a, take another look at all those issues. What would be the impact on access to water by people who don't live on reservations? Well, I, I think um, because the Indian water rights has this powerful preemptive effect, which is that it has a priority date that is no later than the date of the reservation, and that the, use, the right to use the water can't be lost uh, by virtue of non-use, it could have an effect on water use by uh, other entities. 
In, in 1868, was the reservation adjacent to the Colorado River? It was not. Uh, the 1868 reservation straddled the uh, New Mexico-Arizona border, which is hundreds of miles away from the lower Colorado River mainstream. So if we are looking at the expectations of the treaty parties, do we look at what their expectations would have been in 1868 or at the time of the expansion of the reservation subsequently? We look to the 1868 time frame, and in that time frame, uh, what they were thinking about was the land set aside for the original reservation, not the land that's at issue today. Where would they have accessed water in 1868? In 1868, in the original reservation, uh, that, that, uh, much of that area lies within the Little Colorado River Basin, and there are uh, washes that come off the main Little Colorado River uh, that would have been sources of water. There was groundwater. They could have impounded water. Um, so, you know, springs, washes, wells. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Uh, counsel, um, you agree that the tribe has reserved water rights, correct? Correct. All right. The, you agree that the U.S. Um, has uh, a trust over that water for the Indians, don't you? Correct. We hold it in trust. You hold it in trust. Correct. And in fact, in the Arizona litigation, the Navajo tribe wanted to intervene, and you said you can't because we represent your interests, correct? Correct. And they can't assert rights um, in their own name because you hold it in trust. So you not only control it, but you're the only one who can assert their interests. Is that correct? That's not true as a general matter, no. Uh, Why? They try to intervene in Arizona, and you said you can't. Because that, we're the trustee. In that particular case, we oppose intervention, and the court uh, agreed and denied intervention. But as the court has since made clear, including in Arizona versus California itself, tribal participation in water rights disputes shouldn't be discouraged. And so it is They the could, but they can't start it without your approval. Uh, it depends on what they're starting. Uh, th there's, there's nothing that requires our approval to start. They, the, the tribe can enforce its own water rights uh, under 28 U.S.C. 1362 by bringing a suit in federal court. They can make their own priority calls for administration once their rights are quantified. They can bring Tucker Act claims against the United States if we interfere with their use of water. And they can assert their own winter's claims in ongoing stream adjudications, um, as they are doing now in the Little Colorado River Basin But what Arizona. you're saying is your trust obligation is meaningless. They can't force you to do anything to protect their water rights. That's what you're saying, correct? Well, the, the nature of the trust obligation we have with respect to the water rights is the same uh, trust obligation we have with respect to the land. And in Mitchell 1, this court addressed that obligation and said it was only a bare or limited trust and did not bear the hallmarks of a conventional fiduciary relationship. And so- You don't think there's a fiduciary relationship here at all? Not that is judicially enforceable well, that's with respect a, that's, to the- That's quite an odd agreement the tribe entered into, isn't it? They agreed to go back to a piece of their homeland and gave, gave the United States control over the vast majority of it. They agreed to sit 
to a, a, a land that would permit them to return to agriculture. Um, and the bargain they got in return was, we, the United States, took away all of your other lands. We gave you this piece of land. Here, survive, even if it's in, uh, it turns into a desert condition where you admit there are significant uh, water needs on the reservation, but the tribe can't do anything about it yeah, against I, you. Can't hold you responsible. I guess two quick points. One is we're holding, we're, we're maintaining the same relationship with respect to the express reservation of land as we are to the implied reservation of water. And I think it'd be strange if the express reservation of land did not give rise to affirmative duties, but the implied reservation of well, water did. But what you're talking about is, and, and a lot of your criticism of the remedies that a court can or can't order, I think are different from uh, the question of, are there any remedies? It seems to me you yourself are agreeing that there could be um, litigation over whether there are sources of water that could be made available from tributaries and not, um, and not uh, violate the um, uh, and not violate the Arizona consent decree. So I don't know why we should say there's no cause of action here merely because there are some remedies that you think exceed your obligations. Well, we don't. And think others don't. It, 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 it appears to me that if there are sources of water that you could litigate about um, and, and secure for the use of the Navajo Nation without building pipes, that that might be something that, in fact, there is no defense against. We don't think there's any available remedy here because we don't think there's any judicially enforceable duty in the first place. Uh, so, and that is irrespective of the scope of the decree in Arizona versus California. But I do want to address the, the sort of historical account of, of what happened. It, it's absolutely true that the United States uh, forcibly relocated the Navajo Nation in 1863 to an area called Bosque Redondo. Uh, and, in, and five years later, the... And in that, in that land, they couldn't farm. There was drought conditions, and for at least three seasons, uh, they were not able to grow any food, correct? What, what, and then the U.S. wanted to put them someplace else, and they insisted on returning to a part of their native homeland. It's true that the crops at Bosco Dundo failed, but I think it's important to understand why they failed. It wasn't because uh, they alleged that the United States had a duty to provide water and we weren't providing it. It was because there was alkaline in both the soil and the water. And so when the Navajo and General Sherman met in May of 1868, the Navajo Nation's request was to be able to return to their ancestral homeland where they could live as they did in the status quo ex ante before they were forcibly relocated. And if we look at the status quo that they wanted to be returned to, it was a status quo in which they could support themselves. It was not a status quo, in, there never was a status quo in which the United States was supplying uh, the Navajo Nation with water or water infrastructure. Justice Kagan? Oh, I'm sorry. Justice okay. Gorsuch? 
um, you emphasize that they got the bundle of sticks, including water, right? Correct. Um, their water rights with respect to the Colorado River have never been adjudicated, right? Correct. And that's because the government opposed their motion to intervene in Arizona versus California, right? No, I don't think that's quite right. Because if you look at the motion for intervention that they filed, they weren't seeking intervention to make claims in the lower Colorado mainstream. They raised five grounds as to why the United States representation was inadequate. This is reproduced at JA 106 and 107. Not one of them is about a failure to seek water in the mainstream. At the time of that litigation, the irrigable acreage on the Navajo reservation was, un was understood to exist within the drainage basin. Mr. Liu, I think we're talking across purposes. Okay. You agree they have a bundle of rights, whatever they are, with respect to water. Correct. They may or may not include some portion of the mainstream of the Colorado. Nobody knows, right? Correct. Because the government opposed the motion to intervene to allow them to participate in that litigation. They weren't looking to participate to assert those claims. Well, nobody's ever litigated them, and you assert the exclusive right to litigate them on behalf of the Navajo. That's not true. The Do you Nav think the Navajo could now intervene in Arizona versus Colorado? They could file a motion to intervene. Do you think they could intervene? Would the government oppose it again? We might oppose it, but it's not, not on grounds that they, they, they can't have their own voice. We might oppose it because of merits or collateral estoppel issues, but not because we don't think uh, tribes should be able to participate so in water So they have a bundle of sticks that remain unadjudicated and that the United States government opposed their participation to adjudicate. That's where we sit. I, I think we, we, the government opposed it and uh, frankly, the court agreed with the merits of our opposition. The, uh, our filing in opposition... The ultimate consent decree specifically says that it doesn't resolve the rights of any Indian tribe except is expressly provided in the consent decree, and that does not include the Navajo, right? Correct, and, that, and I think that's Thank partly you. why the Navajo can bring a motion to reopen the decree if they want to. Well, except for you're going to oppose it again. You just made well, that clear I, I don't know the lectern. Gonna, I and, think and it, so what remedy do they have I other think, than to say, okay, if you're going to assert the right to control that litigation and, and, and adjudicate our bundle of sticks, we can at least pursue litigation to try to force you to do that. I'm not saying we would oppose it or not. I'm just saying, uh, you know, we'll make that determination based on the substance of the motion. But the point is, we do not control what the Navajo Nation does with its water rights. They can vindicate them on their own. They are a sovereign nation. Justice Kavanaugh? Pick up on Justice Alito's questions from earlier and ask you about assertion made in the amicus brief of the Western water users and just to get the United States assessment of them. Uh, that amicus brief says the reduction of available water would necessarily come at the expense of existing allocation holders, particularly from the Central Arizona Project, which delivers water to 80% of the state's population. This amicus brief says that would have severe negative consequences for Arizona, its businesses, and its agricultural and industrial sectors, and would strike at the heart of the social and economic livelihood of Arizona with dire consequences. I'm not saying I agree with that. I just want, that's an assertion in the amicus brief. I want your assessment of the implications. Yeah, it, it is true that basically all the water in the lower basin is allocated. And I guess to respond to that directly, Congress has set aside in the 2004 Arizona Water Settlements Act 
6,411 acre-feet of water for a future water settlement out of the Central Arizona Project for the Navajo Nation. That is water that would require additional congressional action to allow the Navajo Nation to use. If they were to use that water, it wouldn't affect, I don't think it would affect necessarily all the other users, because that's, that's water that's already been set aside. Um, and so I, I think the fact that Congress has done that just reinforces um, where this dispute belongs. It doesn't just belong in the courts, it belongs in front of the political branches which have focused on this, these sorts of issues. Uh, different tack. Uh, the Ninth Circuit decision is barely defended by the Navajo Nation. What should we do with that? Well, I mean, one option sometimes is, well, we'll just yeah. send it back to the Ninth Circuit because none of the arguments that uh, persuaded the Ninth Circuit are being uh, re-upped here. Right. I, I think the only issue that's really in dispute at this point is the interpretation of the 1849 and 1868 treaties. And we would urge the court to decide the issue of that interpretation for all the usual reasons this court decides issues. Because it was addressed below, PEDAP 31, the, the Ninth Circuit did address these provisions of the treaties uh, because the issue has been fully briefed here, because it is a purely legal issue, and frankly, because we think the issue is straightforward. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Mr. Liu, the United States asserted winter's rights on behalf of five tribes in Arizona versus California. Why didn't you assert winter's rights on behalf of the Navajo? Because when we looked at the evidence of where the Navajo had irrigable acreage, all of that acreage existed in the Little Colorado River Basin, which is a tributary of the Lower Colorado and not in the part that would be supplied by the Lower Colorado itself. So you made the determination that they did not have winter's rights in the mainstream? Yes, at a time when the applicable standard was practically irrigable acreage. And to clarify your interchange, your position in your interchange with Justice Gorsuch, you might oppose, you, you can't commit the United States can't to what commit. they would do, but you're saying that in your view, nothing stops the Navajo now from seeking to intervene and assert their own winter's rights in Arizona versus California to Correct. reopen that decree. They can make that request. Do you see winter's rights as something that belong to the Navajo or something that belong to the United States that United States protects on behalf of the Navajo? We view the winter's rights as belonging to the Navajo. They are the beneficial owners. The United States merely has legal title and holds those in trust. But we view the Navajo as the owners, as they own the land, the minerals, the timber. Okay. Earlier, I think maybe to, in response to Justice Salito, you said that there would be groundwater and other sources and aquifers underneath the reservation that the Navajo could use to supply their water needs. Correct. Why then would this necessarily be, why would resolving this dispute be at odds with the decree? Because it sounds to me like what you're saying is that they could get water from places other than the mainstream. Right. I think there are ways to resolve this suit without violating the, the decree. Even if the court believes there is a duty, there are forms of relief that fall sh that are short of ordering a delivery of water from the lower Colorado to the Navajo Nation. And as so long as the decree, I think, I mean, so long as the relief here avoids that sort of relief, I don't think the decree is. So the decree part is kind of irrelevant. In the United States' view, it comes into play only if 
they're seeking a particular type of relief. Okay, and then last question. I'm having trouble conceptually thinking of this, trying to decide whether this feels more like a breach of contract claim for breaching the treaty or a breach right. of trust claim. Because in a breach of trust, and when you look at the line of cases that are at dis dispute here, like say timber or you know mineral rights, those kinds of things, you're looking at a race. You know, there's there's actually there's mineral rights, there's timber, et cetera. And here we're not looking at a race. So it seems to me more, and the strongest arguments, and I think you've heard some of that today, it seems to me that the strongest arguments made um, on behalf of the Navajo in the Navajo's brief are in the nature of you breached the treaty. It was broken promises. You promised us a permanent home, and you're not. Is there a claim that the Navajo could have brought for breaching the treaty? It just doesn't seem to me to fit very neatly in the breach of trust model. I, I fully understand the point. I, I think there is an overlap between a treaty claim and a trust claim. I think both of them, if you're gonna base them on the treaty, overlap in this way. To, to prove up either claim, you would need to point to an actual duty that exists in the treaty. Whether you wanna say it's a breach of treaty or a breach of trust, you, you at least have to show that. Now I think where the difference lies is if the Navajo Nation wanted to take advantage of common law trust principles, for example, if they wanted to hold us to a duty of prudence or a duty of loyalty, then they'd have to prove something more than just any old treaty duty. They'd have to show that that duty also bore the characteristics of a conventional fiduciary relationship. And, I, 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 and to just draw a comparison, I, I, I think the earlier cases like Mitchell I and Mitchell II, if you look at the statutes in those cases, the, they say something like, the government will hold the timber in trust and will have the responsibility to manage them. There's nothing in there about a duty of prudence or loyalty or anything like that, but because that type of duty looks like a trust duty, you can use the common law to flesh out those duties. Contrast that with a, a promise in this treaty, which is something like, we will give you seeds uh, for up to three years. That is a duty, and we agree that under today's legal regime, it would be enforceable as a treaty duty. But I don't think it would be a trust duty, because a promise to give someone seeds doesn't bear all the hallmarks. Okay, so, of, of what, but I think it matters how we think about it. I mean, and I guess my first question is, would there be a cause of action? Could they bring kind of a breach of contract, breach of treaty claim if that's how they had wanted to style this cause of action? Yes, they could have brought could a have brought breach that. of treaty claim. Yes. And if they brought a breach of treaty claim, we would be talking about a different set of legal rules because presumably all of these rules about explicitness would not apply because we would be thinking more about benefit of the bargain and expectation of the parties, and so we would be using using a different legal framework, right? Well, I don't think you necessarily would. We understand the Hickoria standard to simply say to courts, don't make up the duties, look at what the political branches have done. If you're talking about a trust. I think if we're talking about really any, any duty, because I think the, 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 the overlapping element that both the treaty claim and a trust claim have is that there must be some actual duty in the treaty. I mean, I agree, but you know, for treaties, we construe them in favor of the Indians. For the trust, when we're looking at trust principles in the Hickorilla line, we're talking about, no, you have to have something that's very express, and that's at odds with construing the document in favor of the Indians, right? 
Uh, well, we don't read the express acceptance language in Hickorya as imposing a clear statement rule. We read that as, as saying, look at the words that the political branches have enacted in a statute, treaty, or regulation. We then think you apply the usual tools of interpretation to those words. So in the case of a treaty, you can apply the Indian canons. Now, all the Indian canons are themselves about how to interpret words. This court has made clear that even Indian treaties can't be written or expanded beyond their, beyond their uh, clear terms. And so even applying those very favorable canons of interpretation, I don't think that gets the Navajo Nation anywhere. They haven't pointed to any ambiguity in any of the language of, of the treaty, and the treaty terms at issue are about seeds and agricultural implements, which everyone agrees are about seeds and agricultural implements. Okay, so just to make sure that I understand, you don't think that they've brought the wrong cause of action. You think that a contract or this, this treaty could have established a trust. It feels odd to me because there's not a race, but you're saying it could have, but it's just that the language in this treaty fell short of doing that. Correct. Okay, thank you. Justice Jackson? Can I go back to Justice Kagan's uh, question? Because um, notwithstanding the fact that the treaty doesn't have the express terminology that you were just exploring with Justice Barrett, um, you've also said here and in previous litigation and your practices um, indicate that the winter's right that belongs to the Navajo is being held in trust by the United States. So to the extent that Winters looks at the treaty and treaties like this and says there is a water right, the United States concedes that it has a trust relationship with respect to those water rights. So what I don't understand is why we don't have a simple breach of fiduciary duty kind of scenario where anyone who has a trustee controlling their interests can come to court and say the trustee is not doing what it's supposed to do in terms of those interests. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't understand why that's not where we are in this case. It's because of the distinction this court has drawn, starting in Mitchell 1 and then reaffirmed in the Navajo cases and then reaffirmed again in Hickorya, that a bare or limited trust isn't enough to give rise to judicial... All right, so I thought you were going to say that, so let me explore those with you. All right, I, I read uh, Mitchell, Navajo 1, Navajo 2, and Hickorilla um, to all be Tucker Act cases. Do you, do you concede that there was a Tucker Act issue going on in those cases? They were all underlying Tucker Act suits. All right, and so the cause of action and the right to sue because of sovereign immunity was arising under the Tucker Act. You needed to satisfy the Tucker Act in those cases, and it's the Tucker Act that gives rise to this positive source of law requirement, right? I mean, that, that requirement is in the Tucker Act, and anybody who tries to sue the federal government for damages under the Tucker Act has to point to a specific positive source of law. But to the extent that this is not a Tucker Act case, I don't understand why we care whether or not there's a positive source of law. This is not like Mitchell, Navajo, Hickorilla. We, we don't have that responsibility because we're not trying to waive sovereign immunity under the Tucker Act in this way. Well, I think this court's cases make clear that, yes, 
the Tucker Act references the same positive sources of law, but that this is a requirement that goes to whether a judicially enforceable duty exists in the first place. Why? Why? What it doesn't in any other fiduciary duty context, right? If this was a regular fiduciary duty case, you would not be here arguing. This didn't involve Indians and it didn't involve rights. You would just say, okay, let's talk about whether or not we actually have a fiduciary duty under common law or whatever. But you seem to be getting this positive source of law thing from the Mitchell Act cases, and those cases, I think, don't apply. Well, Hickorya itself, while it was an underlying Tucker Act suit, the relief sought there was equitable relief. And yeah, but Hickorya wasn't even about whether or not there's a cause of action for uh, a breach of fiduciary duty. Hickorya, everybody agreed, um, you know, th this, excuse me, in Hickorya, unlike this case, there was no uh, uh, agreement about the extent of the fiduciary obligation, right? I understood that case to be a dispute over whether or not the United States had acted as a fiduciary insofar as the tribe could point to that action and use the exception to attorney-client privilege, right? It was, it was about documents. And the United States said, okay, you know, you want to try to get access to these documents under the fiduciary exception to attorney-client privilege, but we're really not acting as a fiduciary. And the court agreed, all right? That has nothing to do with, I think, what is at issue in this case, where you agree that you have acted as a fiduciary, that you are a fiduciary in the sense that you hold the rights in trust. So we've already taken care of the Hickorilla issue as to whether or not you're a fiduciary. The question here is whether there's a cause of action by the Indians to sue you for breach of that fiduciary. And here was Hickorilla's reasoning. The government is a sovereign, not a private trustee. The government, because it's a sovereign, can structure the the trust relationship to serve its own policy goals. As part of that discretion, Congress can shape the, the, the relationship so that it is just a bare or limited trust, so that it do, is not taking on all the fiduciary duties that would go along with the private trustee. All right, but is there any, is there any real dispute here that the government understood its trust obligations to be to assert winter rights and to make sure that, as Justice Gorsuch pointed out, the the novel had enough uh, water? I mean... Yes, that, uh, is, that is absolutely in dispute. So can I just ask you how so when the United States has asserted <coughs> these winter rights in at least, uh, with respect to the Navajo Nation, um, in at least three different actions outside of the Colorado mainstream, when it's represented various tribes in the original uh, Arizona versus California litigation, when it obtains waivers or releases of the right to sue the U.S. for winter's violations, it's clear that the United States thinks that it is acting as a fiduciary with respect to this. We take all those actions uh, in furtherance of our general trust responsibilities to the Navajo Nation. We, we of course acknowledge that we have a general trust relationship with all tribes, including the Navajo Nation. And but so the we, tribes can't sue you if they think you're not uh, uh, up to task with respect to that. Unless Congress has expressly assumed those duties. And in Mitchell too, with respect to timber, Congress did. Congress enacted statutes that said not only would the timber be held in trust, but that trust is going to bear the hallmarks of a conventional fiduciary didn't relationship. Our, didn't our analysis in, in, in Mitchell 2 really also focus on the degree to which the government assumed elaborate control 
over the forest. It wasn't so much just the language of the statute, but the government was acting as though it was controlling the forests in a way that is similar, I think, to what's happening here. Well, the courts made clear in Navajo too that control is not enough. And so what was doing the work in Mitchell too was that Congress, in the language of the, of the relevant statutes, had, had uh, recognized this trust relationship and imposed on the government duties to manage the timber in a way for the benefit uh, of the Indians. And, and that language is just absent from the treaty here. There is no language like the statutes in Mitchell II so that do think, for the- if, if we think this is a, an APA claim, if we think that what's actually happening is that the tribe is suing the government under 706 for otherwise violating the law under their, what they perceive to be a fiduciary duty, um, breach of fiduciary duty, um, do you lose? No, not at all. I mean, everyone agrees that the APA in Section 702 supplies the applicable waiver of sovereign immunity, but they still need to have some cause of action, some the duty. The APA also has a cause of action. That's what I'm asking you. If they're relying on the APA's cause of action, not anything analogous to the Tucker Act or anything else, then don't they at least survive the motion to dismiss, and no. then we can go on to other parts of this litigation? No, for the same reason, because they haven't pointed at any specific duty that would justify that sort of relief. Thank you, counsel.